from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Rutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 13th. Today, how the Obama administration missed the fentanyl crisis, the corruption scandal undermining Justin Trudeau's feminist cred, and the NHL considers letting women ref games. The opioid crisis has been bad for a long time. First, there was a rise in addiction to prescription painkillers. Then people started switching to heroin, which caused more overdoses and more deaths. But around 2013, things suddenly got much worse because of the arrival of a drug called fentanyl. For the past year, a team of investigative reporters at The Post had been trying to answer the question— Why was this drug able to spread so quickly? Can you talk for me for a second? Yeah, can you hear me? I'm Katie Zesma, and I've been reporting on fentanyl for the last couple of years. Uh, Can you tell me who we're calling? His name is uh, Jody Rich. He is a doctor and professor at Brown University. How does he connect to the story? epidemiologists and others who work in in public health, particularly in Rhode Island and Maryland, started seeing large numbers of overdose deaths, these clusters of deaths where there would be, you know, a dozen people in northwest Rhode Island who died, which was very unusual. So they went to the coroner's office and they looked through the, you know, the death reports. Hello. Hi, it's Katie and Ted. How are you? Okay. Hi. Josiah Rich was one of those people going through these coroner reports. You know, those files are the autopsy report and uh, the toxicology report. And right at the very end are the death scene photographs. And it's kind of like reading the story of someone's life, and you know how it's going to end out. And he kept looking at cause of death going through these coroner reports. Then it kept being fentanyl, 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 fentanyl. You know, there was one of a young pregnant woman, and in the background are all these baby shower gifts, and it just breaks your heart. Fentanyl was not something that was typically seen on the street. Most people at that point, they had used prescription drugs, they had migrated to heroin. And it was really concerning because fentanyl is such a deadly drug. You know, I'd been talking to the medical examiners and the death scene investigators. And they described how, you know, usually they would go to a death scene and there would be a table. And on the table, there would be some drug paraphernalia. And then On the other side of the room, there was a couch and there was a TV there. The TV would be on and the body would be on the couch. So they put it together. Well, the person, you know, sat down at the table, used some drugs, you know, went over to the couch, lay down to watch TV, and then that was it. But they noticed that no longer was the body on the other side of the room. In fact, the body's still in the chair with the syringe still in the arm. So people were dying instantly. They were dying within minutes. Fentanyl killed people so fast, and they found that that was what was responsible for these large spikes. It was often cut into heroin, and it would kill users, you know, dozens of people at once from one batch of heroin that was laced with fentanyl. It was unlike anything that people in public health and users on the street had seen. We felt a sense of urgency. We knew we needed a large federal response. And it was just not coming. So we gathered as much data as we can. We put together a small letter. 
So this is a letter that a number of people in public health sent to the highest levels of the federal government in May 2016, and they essentially asked them to declare a public health emergency on fentanyl. What is the point of having the federal government declare a public health emergency? First of all, a public health emergency declaration can open up some resources, but more importantly, it can focus people. It can can sound the alarm. They saw it kind of as the kindling for what would become a wildfire that swept across the United States. What happened after they didn't do it? They didn't do it. They didn't do it. That was national reporter Katie Zesma and Post Reports producer Ted Muldoon. There was a very clear pattern over a long period of time of alerts and warnings that fentanyl was coming. Time and time again, there were opportunities for the federal government to see this as the threat that it truly was. The problem was that government officials were focused on the first two waves of the opioid epidemic, and they didn't see the third wave coming. And that was the deadliest wave of them all. My name is Sari Horowitz. My name is Scott Hyam. Scott and I have been reporting on the fentanyl epidemic. Sari and Scott had been looking in particular at this moment when fentanyl became a massive public health crisis. That tipping point happened midway through President Obama's second term. But the roots of the crisis came decades earlier. This epidemic really began about 25 years ago in 1995 when Purdue Pharma created a drug that was kind of like a wonder drug, people thought at the time, called OxyContin. Back in the 90s, a lot of people thought that this was going to be a a less addictive form of opioid, a painkiller that you could take without high risk of addiction. That turned out not to be the case. And what happened after that was a lot of other manufacturers began producing alternatives to OxyContin, manufacturing massive amounts of oxycodone, hydrocodone, also known as Vicodin, Percodan, Percocet. And these pills were being prescribed by corrupt doctors, by pill mills in South Florida. You could buy them over the internet. It was really widespread. Millions of people became addicted, and that was the first wave of the epidemic. And then the DEA started cracking down on corrupt doctors, on the pill mills, on the internet sales, and then on the distributors and drug manufacturers themselves. And suddenly, the drugs on the street, prescription drugs, began to dry up. Unfortunately, this was right around the same time that the Colombians turned over their white heroin business to the Mexicans. Derek Maltz was on the ground in the very early years of the epidemic. He was the special DEA agent in charge of their special operations division. So what happened was it became like the perfect storm. It became harder and harder for users to find these drugs and to afford these drugs. And the Mexican cartels took advantage of the addicted communities around America and they began flooding these very same communities with heroin. They were getting more and more people addicted to heroin because it was cheaper. It was a better high than you could get from taking oxy or hydrocodone. And it also was easily accessible for the addict. DEA agents like Derek Maltz started seeing this shift from prescription pain pills to heroin, and that was kind of the second wave of the epidemic. And it didn't last very long because... Very soon, drug dealers realized... When they started trying to really make the money, they started importing fentanyl from China. They could order it over the internet, they could get it through the mail... And mix it in their existing product line. They could put a little bit of fentanyl 
that they could get for really cheap and they could put that into their heroin and make their heroin so much more potent and so much more attractive to users on the street. And that's when it became a very fatal business. And that was the kind of the third wave of this epidemic. And it's really a tsunami. And people are dying at unprecedented rates. Derek, you've been a DEA agent for a long time. And you've seen other outbreaks, crack, meth. What was it about fentanyl that was different than these other outbreaks? One kilogram of fentanyl can kill 500,000 adults. We have never seen anything like that in the history of our country. This is a chemical weapon. It only takes two milligrams of fentanyl to kill an adult. That's actually the equivalent of four grains of salt. This is the deadliest drug crisis in American history ever. Between 2013 and 2017, more than 67,000 people died from fentanyl-related overdoses. So that number exceeds the number of U.S. military personnel killed during the Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan wars combined. The annual death toll from fentanyl is soon going to approach that from guns or traffic accidents. In 2017 alone, fentanyl was to blame for 28,869 opioid overdoses, and that represents a 46% increase over the previous year. This epidemic knows no political party lines. It knows no geographical lines. It knows no economic lines. It affects everybody. Kids in America, they go to college. They want to stay awake at night. Somebody tells them to take a Ritalin pill. They take a Ritalin pill, but they don't know. It has five grains of fentanyl in it, and they die instantly. Derek, some people who die of a fentanyl overdose don't even know that they're taking fentanyl. Why is that? Well, first of all, you have to understand fentanyl is being produced in China. It's being sent into Mexico. And in Mexico, these cartels are mixing the fentanyl with other types of substances, and they're sending it into the country. And a lot of times the users have no idea what they're taking. So the consumers in America think they're getting maybe a Xanax, think they're getting maybe some Ritalin or Adderall, But they have no idea that inside that pill is this powerful substance called fentanyl. In 2014, so we're early in the crisis, again, the focus of the government was on heroin. In fact, in March of 2014, a month after Philip Seymour Hoffman, the actor, died of a heroin overdose, the attorney general at that time, Eric Holder, produced and put out a video all about heroin. When confronting the the problem of substance abuse, it makes sense to focus attention on the most dangerous types of drugs. And right now, fewer substances are more lethal than prescription opiates and heroin. Addiction to heroin... And he didn't mention fentanyl. And it wasn't that he was consciously keeping fentanyl out of his speech. It's just that it was not on the radar of officials in Washington. Even though there were deaths on the ground in New England and it was increasingly seen as a danger, it wasn't yet a focus. Three months later, the DEA, Derek Maltz's group, came to the Justice Department. We did a briefing to Attorney General Holder. It was a slide presentation. To pretty much explain this evolving trend that we saw, which was very disturbing and overwhelming to law enforcement around America. And they didn't specifically ask the Attorney General to do anything. And his aides tell us he didn't do anything because they didn't ask him. 
But what Derek Maltz says is we were hoping for leadership. We would hope briefing the highest level law enforcement executive in the country that there would be a sense of urgency within the department to start really pushing out the messages. And there were some things that were done, but we really needed to put that on steroids because this was evolving very quickly. What's really frustrating for me since you asked is that I'm sick and tired of the lack of unity of effort when it comes to the agencies and the information sharing. And that is the responsibility of the Department of Justice. And there's been people that have died as the result of no accountability on the information sharing. And with a crisis like this going on in America, that's when you need to have significant accountability on the leadership of the different agencies. And that was not happening. I think what the DEA was hoping for was a more coordinated policy with the Justice Department and other federal law enforcement agencies. For instance, the Customs and Border Protection. They didn't have enough officers. The Postal Service inspectors. Wasn't prepared for this unique kind of drug trafficking. To start coordinating efforts across all of these different agencies and having them focus specifically on this fentanyl threat. There was a real lag in data on what was happening on the ground in real time. So, for example, with infectious diseases like Zika and Ebola, there was a huge response. There was an Ebola czar, for example. So they were getting real-time data. And with the Zika, there were, I think, two deaths compared to what the tens of thousands of deaths we've seen with fentanyl. And in this case, some coroners across the country were not testing for fentanyl early on. And they were seeing data about deaths a year later. You know, we declared Zika a national health emergency. We declared Ebola a national health emergency. And the Obama administration was asked three years ago to declare a national public health emergency for fentanyl alone, not for the opioid epidemic, but for fentanyl specifically, and decided not to do it because they felt it was going to be largely symbolic and wouldn't have that much of an impact. But the bully pulpit is very important. The general public really didn't know about fentanyl. The fentanyl epidemic required a unique strategy. We went to all of the Obama administration officials who were part of this story to get a comment from them. And several of them would not give us a statement, would not do an interview. But in the case of Eric Holder, for example, his spokesperson said that Eric Holder, the former attorney general, made fighting the opioid crisis a major focus and supported the DEA. So, again, he's not speaking specifically about fentanyl, but the overall opioid crisis. Katie Hill, who is the spokesperson for President Obama, said something similar, that any story about the administration's fentanyl response should be put in the context of, quote, our comprehensive approach to the opioid crisis. It's kind of like a a monster movie where you can hear the monster's footsteps and you can see the shadows and then suddenly somebody gets snatched and they're gone and nobody's really going, wow, look, there's a monster in this house until it grabs you. And that's what was happening here. It was like this monster lurking in the shadows and people either didn't want to look at it or too afraid to look at it or they were in denial that it was coming. It was coming and it came in a big way and it killed a lot of people and it's killing 
more and more people every day. The numbers are just spiraling out of control. Sari Horowitz is a reporter covering the Justice Department. And Scott Hyam is an investigative reporter. You can find Sari, Scott, and Katie's entire story on the Obama-era roots of the fentanyl crisis at postreports.com. For more than a month, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government has been rocked by a political crisis. The first major scandal for a politician who, until recently, was seen as having a charmed career. In Canada, there's always been people who like Trudeau and people who don't like Trudeau, like any politician. But internationally, he's been cast as this sort of hero, this perfect foil for Trump. And so now that he's getting some bad publicity... You know, this golden boy is becoming a pariah, especially in the international press. In our worldly today, it looks as though Canada's golden boy may have lost just a bit of his shine. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is dealing with a growing scandal tonight. The honeymoon's over. We're now three kids in and the babies up screaming all night. My name's Emily Rahala, and I cover foreign affairs for The Post with a focus on Canada. The roots of this scandal sort of start in 2015. This big Canadian engineering firm called SNC-Lavalin is charged by Canadian authorities with basically paying money to the government of Libya in an inappropriate way, bribes. This comes to light after it's alleged in a story in the Globe and Mail, the national newspaper, that Trudeau's government had pressured the attorney general of Canada to basically cut a deal with this company. Instead of them facing criminal charges, they get a deal, they pay a fine, and the company survives. Why would Justin Trudeau want to go easy on this company? The importance of this company to Quebec, where Trudeau's from, is pretty clear. It employs a lot of people, a lot of pensioners, ordinary people in Quebec through their pension funds are invested in this company. And if this company collapsed, it would be a huge hit for all sorts of Canadians, including the middle-class Canadians that Trudeau has promised to represent and promised to serve. So the allegation is that they tried to pressure this attorney general into cutting a deal with this company. And then what happens? So this is all playing out behind the scenes. Earlier this year, the attorney general, the former attorney general, her name is Jody Wilson-Raybould, She was reassigned in a surprise cabinet shuffle to a lower position. A few weeks later, the Globe and Mail has an exclusive that says, you know, that she had been reshuffled after refusing to cut a deal for this company. And from there, the scandal sort of just snowballs as the Canadian press and various inquiries try to figure out what happened and who allegedly pressured whom or not. So what people are thinking is that this attorney general, she was punished for standing up to the prime minister and saying, no, I'm not going to go easy on these guys. That's exactly it. The allegation from Trudeau's critics here is that his team used undue political influence to keep going back to her and saying, are you sure you don't want to cut a deal here? Maybe you should consult some other experts and cut a deal here. You know, here's another angle 
that you should consider in this case and that it was inappropriate level of influence. So she ends up resigning. But then there are other members of the cabinet that also are leaving. That's right. So she resigns basically pretty quietly. She she leaves her job in the cabinet, hires a lawyer, and doesn't say much for a while. Then she delivers her side of the story in this sort of explosive testimony where she recounts, sort of, she uses the term veiled threats from Trudeau and his team. I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. And another senior female member of the cabinet, a woman named Jane Philpott, decides to resign in solidarity with her. Wow. So Trudeau loses two key senior female cabinet members in a matter of a couple weeks. And what strikes me about this is that part of what has made Trudeau so popular, I think, internationally from the time that he was elected, was the fact that his cabinet was so diverse and that he had 15 men and 15 women and that his cabinet represented populations that had previously not been represented in the highest levels of Canadian government. And so I feel like that puts this in a particularly bad light. That's exactly why this scandal keeps growing, at least from a public relations perspective. I think Jody Wilson-Raybould's When she was appointed to be the first Indigenous Attorney General of Canada, it was such a watershed moment. Here is an Indigenous woman, a real rising political star, put in not some symbolic job, not governing that specific issue area, but this is someone running Canada's legal system. And then she's demoted under mysterious circumstances. And then it emerges, you know, that she was potentially bullied out of that job. And I think that's why the allegations are so sensitive, that this group that has been marginalized was given a spot and then were sort of, Trudeau's critics allege, robbed of that moment and robbed of the chance to do that job for political reasons that had nothing to do with who she was or how she was performing. So these allegations against Trudeau, are they being investigated? Yes, they are. There's been a series of hearings at the parliamentary level where people have come forward and given testimony about who knew what when. And there's also going to be a more formal inquiry from ethics investigators into this question of influence that's really at the heart of the case. So what does Trudeau have to say about all of this? Trudeau has not said a lot. In the early weeks of the scandal, he issued very tightly worded legalistic denials of the claims regarding influence. And he hasn't really addressed the heart of what a lot of people are talking about, which is the fact that two high-profile female cabinet members have resigned. He did address the media last week. What has become clear through the various testimonies is that over the past months, there was an erosion of trust between my office and specifically my former principal secretary and the former minister of justice and attorney general. He did not apologize which is a rarity for Trudeau, who is sort of known for saying sorry in a very Canadian way. But he basically said, you know, I regret some of the way this has played out, but we're going to look ahead and I'm a compassionate leader and we're moving forward. What are people in Canada saying about this? This scandal has been dominating Canadian headlines for more than a month now. And how you feel about it really depends on who you are. If you're a Trudeau supporter, you support the liberal government, odds are you think this is being overblown, this is how government works, politicians defend jobs in their districts. 
but a lot of Trudeau's critics are people who were sort of on the fence about him. This is being cited as sort of evidence that he's not who he pretended to be, that he's not a real feminist, that he's not truly committed to Indigenous affairs and to reconciliation with Indigenous communities. And so it's become very divisive and it's still going on. And Trudeau is up for re-election this fall. So what is this going to mean for his prospects? That's a big question. Before this scandal broke, most people thought he was cruising towards another majority government so that he was going to win solidly and have another term. In the last few weeks, a lot of political analysts are saying it's more likely he'll get a minority government, so he'll lose ground, but he won't lose his job. And there are people who are predicting that this could cost him, you know, his political future. Emily Rahala covers Canada for The Post. And now, one more thing. A new frontier for women in sports. It seemed like earlier in the season, the NHL kind of put it out there that female officials is something they would be open to in the future. And, you know, we've seen it in the NFL, you know, with Sarah Thomas refereeing kind of prominent games, a playoff game this year. You never dreamed that this would really come true. We've seen it in the NBA. It just feels like the NHL was kind of the last of the big sports to get there. Isabel Kershudian covers Washington, D.C.'s pro hockey team, the Capitals. She says that even though women don't currently officiate NHL games, that could change with an official named Katie Gay. She's probably the most prominent woman referee right now. I currently officiate... Division One men's and women's hockey, and I also work for the USA Hockey Foundation. For my first men's game, was certainly very eye-opening. Katie is rumored to be a frontrunner among women who may be recruited to the NHL as referees. But right now, the league says that it is not in a hurry. And I think they understand that, you know, in other sports it's already happened and, you know, it should happen in the NHL as well, but they don't have a specific hard and fast deadline for it to happen. I haven't been in any discussion, so so who knows. Isabel says that even if Katie gets to ref for the NHL, it's not clear whether she'd get to officiate high-level games. MLB hasn't had a woman, you know, umpire game, like a regular season game. They've had women at spring training games, and I think they have women, you know, at like minor league levels. Same goes for major league soccer. I don't think they've had a woman be like a head official in 20 years. So they have their issues too. Katie says that if she does eventually get to the NHL, she just wants to be treated like an equal. You know, having them treat me just like any other official out there is the most I can ask for. Isabel Kershudian covers the Capitals for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.